please turn with me, everyone, if you will, to uh, Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah chapter 50. Uh, we're going to read. I'm going to be looking at the whole chapter uh, and, and reflecting a little bit on chapter 51, but we're going to just start by reading verses 8 through 16. Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 8 through 16. Beloved saints, uh, this is God's word for us this morning. Uh, please give your attention to the reading of it. Flee from the midst of Babylon and go out of the land of the Chaldeans and be as male goats before the flock. For behold, I am stirring up and bringing against Babylon a gathering of great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her. From there, she shall be taken their arrows are like skilled warriors, like a skilled warrior who does not return empty-handed. Chaldea shall be plundered. All who plunder her shall be sated, declares the Lord. Though you rejoice, though you exult, O plunderers of my heritage, though you frolic like a heifer in the pasture and neigh like stallions, your mother shall be utterly shamed and she who bore you shall be disgraced. For behold, she shall be the last of the nations, a wilderness, a dry land, and a desert. Because the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, shall be, she shall be an utter desolation. Everyone who passes by Babylon shall be appalled and hiss because of all her wounds. Set yourselves in array against Babylon all around, all you who bend the bow. Shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Raise a shout against her all around. She has surrendered. Her bulwarks have fallen. Her walls are thrown down. For this is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her. Do to her as she has done. Cut off from Babylon the sower and the one who handles the sickle in time of harvest. Because the sword of the oppressor, everyone shall turn to his own people and everyone shall flee to his own land. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word uh, this morning. Our great God of truth, we confess that we are prone to believe lies and not the truth. We are easily swayed and led astray. And the simple reality is that we give ear to voices that we ought not. We believe things that are simply not true. Worse still, we often believe, thing, believe things that you have clearly denied. We believe that you are limited by our strength. You are constrained by our sin, that our wickedness is greater than your mercy. And so as we now turn to your word, we ask that you would root out all lies, destroy all impostors of the truth, and renew our minds in the knowledge of your truth. And all of this we ask in the name of the God who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Well, uh, judgment is one of those subjects in the Bible that is unavoidable, but not popular. And let's be honest, judgment's not a fun subject, and that's, that's okay. It's not meant to be a fun subject. Important subjects and important issues are seldom fun. But we tend to have an aversion to heavy subjects. We avoid them. And the reason... 
is because they're uncomfortable. And because we avoid them, we tend often to misunderstand important subjects, or at least our understanding is limited and lacking. And that's the reality when it comes to judgment. We tend to think of judgment only in terms of punishment. We tend to think of it only in terms of what God does to his enemies. And to be sure, judgment is coming for his enemies. However, much of Jeremiah is about God judging his own people, his own children. How are we going to take this? Have, have we become his enemies? Is there no hope for his children? And what about Jesus? He came on the cross under divine judgment. Has he become the enemy? The judgment of God is a large subject and has many aspects. And as the book of Jeremiah draws to a close, these different aspects of judgment become important. And that's what we want to look at today as we consider chapter 50, and, and really chapter 50 within the larger context of chapters 46 through 51. As, as Jeremiah turns its focus onto the Gentile nations and God's judgment of those nations. And as we look at uh, these uh, chapters, what we're going to see is that it is only through judgment that God can protect justice, bring salvation, and restore peace. And so really we want to do three things as we look at uh, Jeremiah 50 this, uh, this morning. It's first we want to look at how judgment relates to his enemies, and then we want to turn and see how it relates to his children. And then finally, we want to look and see what it is that can only be accomplished through judgment. That's what we want to do as we uh, turn now uh, to this uh, one of these final chapters of this book that we've been studying for the last several months. Now, when it comes to God's judgment on his enemies, the first thing that becomes clear is that it is retributive. That is, it is an expression of justice. It's punishment for wrongs done. The wrongs done, what are they? Well, there are two uh, that Jeremiah tells us about. The first is for following after false gods. Throughout God's judgments and his uh, on, on these different nations, on Babylon, on Egypt, and others, uh, the one thing that keeps coming up are, are rebukes for, their, for them placing their faith in false gods. And we know the first and great commandment is to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul and mind, and with all of our strength. We know that we are to have no other gods before the true God. And yet, what has this world done? It has sought after any and every other God. People will worship their own cat before they worship the true God. They will worship anything that will allow them to avoid bowing their hearts and their knees before their creator. But God tells us he's a jealous God. He cares when we treat things which are not God's as if they were. It's evil. It's evil to worship false gods. It's more evil to worship a false god than it is to do any evil you could against your fellow man because it's an affront to the one who made you. And because God is good, because he is just, such evil cannot go unanswered. It must be punished. But his judgment is not just for them worshiping false gods. It's for also for how the nations have treated his children. 
In chapters 46 through 51, God works his way systematically through the nations that have mistreated the Jews over the years. Chapter 46 starts with the Egyptians. Chapter 47 deals with the Philistines. Chapter 48, the Moabites. Chapter 49 starts with Ammon, then goes to Edom, then Damascus, and then Kedar and Hazar and Elam. And then finally, chapters 50 and 51 address Babylon. And these are the nations who have attacked, enslaved, and generally mistreated God's people over the years. Going back to their earliest of days, from Israel's inception as a nation to their current suffering under Babylon, it's like God is saying, I have not forgotten the evils that you have done to my children. And so God announces, though you rejoice, though you exalt, O plunderers of my heritage, <laughs> that's fancy talk for mistreaters of my children. He says, though you frolic like a heifer in the pasture and neigh like stallions, your mother shall be utterly shamed and she who bore you shall be disgraced. Behold, she shall be the last of the nations, a wilderness, a dry land, and a desert. They have plundered God's heritage, his people. And now it's time for them to give an account. Now it's time for them to pay for their crimes. And so the first thing we see about judgment is it is retributive. It's payback uh, in, a, in a just sense for wrongs done. The second thing we see about judgment when it comes to God's enemies is that it is also destructive. Jeremiah 50, 36 says, a sword against the diviners that they may become fools, a sword against her warriors that they may be destroyed. The end goal of God's judgment is destruction, devastation. And so the image presented in these chapters of Babylon is total ruin. In fact, God invokes the image of Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis 18 and 19, uh, because the goal of judgment with God's enemies is to bring the rebellion and the havoc they wreak to an end. It's to put a stop to it. And because God's judgment of his enemies is retributive, it, it must be uh, measure. Uh, must be given in measure to their rebellion. We know that the wages of sin is death, that sin can only be measured in terms of life. Anything else would fall short of what justice demands. And so true, just, true justice must be destructive in that sense. And that means that such judgment must be permanent. And that's the third thing we see. It's, it's retributive, it's destructive, and it's permanent when it comes to his enemies. Jeremiah 50, chapter, verse 39 says, Babylon shall never again have people, nor be inhabited for all generations. There's a finality to this judgment. We see this in how God calls due all past debts with the nations from Egypt to Babylon. There's a sense in which we see a final and global judgment taking place in these chapters. All of that Israel's enemies seem to flow toward this point and the judgment taking place in Babylon. It's as if Babylon embodies all of God's enemies. I think this is why the book of Revelation uses Babylon to as a sort of identity, as a way to identify all earthly kingdoms and nations. 
And it's at this point that in Jeremiah that, that Babylon truly represents more than just that kingdom being ruled by Nebuchadnezzar in the 6th century BC. It, it, it symbolizes all earthly powers that arrogantly stand opposed to God. It embodies all those who have persecuted God's people through the ages, whether that's Egypt or Babylon or, or, or Rome in the time of Christ or, or Nazi Germany in the 40s or the Soviet Union in China throughout the last century. The list could go on and on and on. And all these nations need to understand, all these enemies of God need to understand that when judgment comes against them, it is final and it's irreversible. But God's judgment with his children is very different. So much of what we have read in the book of Jeremiah is directed at God's own people, his own children, and their rebellion, and the consequences for that rebellion. But from the beginning, we've seen a different tone than that which we see here with Egypt and Moab and Babylon. God's tone with Israel has always been corrective, not retributive. It's hard, um, but I'm trying to learn personally to be more careful with my own language. I'm trying to be more careful to distinguish between punishment and discipline. Truly, a father doesn't punish. A father disciplines. Now, it, may, it might sound like a, a, a game of semantics, but I think the difference is important. Punishment is about justice. Punishment is retributive. The goal of punishment is to exact payment. Discipline is different. Discipline is corrective. It's about training. The goal of discipline is, is, is change. It's driven by love. And so the Bible always connects discipline to the love of a father. Proverbs 13 tells us, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but whoever loves him is, is diligent to discipline him. Or Hebrews as uh, Pastor Brian mentioned in Sunday school today, says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Discipline is loving because it's corrective. Uh, Proverbs uh, says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Judgment for God's children means allowing adversity to wake them from their foolishness. It means teaching them to repent and to seek him. Its end is not death. Its end is life. So in Jeremiah 50, in our passage in verse 4, it says, In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together, weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God. This is where God has been driving them through all that he's brought into their life, all the adversity, all the, the struggles with Babylon. This is where God has been heading all along. For his children, his judgment is corrective. It's not just corrective, it's productive. It does something. What's the result of their repentance? It's life, it's, it's forgiveness, it's peace with God. Because discipline is corrective, it, it leads from the path of destruction 
to the way of life. It leads to forgiveness and it leads to restoration. This is the opposite of what judgment does for his enemies. But it doesn't just lead to peace with God. In God's amazing way, his judgment also leads to peace with one another. Since the days of Rehoboam, the the son of Solomon, Solomon's successor, the people of God have been divided into two nations. There was a civil war in the days of Rehoboam. At the height of their peace, at the height of their prosperity, in a time of security and wealth that they had never known before or since, they turned on each other in civil war. And for almost five centuries, the, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah have acted more like enemies to each other than brothers. And yet in our passage, we see that these two nations, Israel and Judah, finally are coming back together. And what's more is God connects it to the suffering that they endured. God says that that as Israel and Judah have been united in their suffering, they will be united in their restoration. Shared suffering has a way of bringing people together. We saw that almost 20 years ago with the attacks of 9-11. We're seeing it all around us in our midst with the the coronavirus outbreak. Parents certainly see it with their children when they're being disciplined. Children will fight and bicker all day long. But when they know judgment is coming, suddenly they band together against that common threat, you know, their, their parents. In this fallen world, it's when we're comfortable, it's when we're prosperous that we find things to fight over. And it's when all of our comforts are stripped away that all our petty differences just seem to evaporate into nothing. And that's something that can only be produced when God allows adversity, when God allows judgment to come into our lives. And so for us as his children, God's judgment is not uh, just corrective, but it's productive. It does something. And that means for God's children, his judgments aren't permanent. They're temporary. Hebrews even uses that language I love in chapter 12, verse 10, uh, of a short time. I don't think it always feels that way, but from God's perspective, these, these aren't long. Our passage presents God's children as arising from judgment and entering into rest, chapter 50, verse 34. Because it's corrective, because it's productive, because it's going somewhere, God's judgment when it comes to his children must be temporary. No father disciplines his child with a desire to remain in that discipline. The goal is always to only do it as as long as is absolutely necessary and no longer. The goal is always something else, something more, it's something moving on. Discipline is unpleasant, but but the necessary road we must walk to get there. But no one in their right mind wants discipline to be permanent. Punishment is permanent. You want to get rid of the danger. But discipline by its very nature is temporary. And what all of this means is that while judgment is an unpleasant subject, it's also an important one. It's necessary. There are some things that can only be accomplished through judgment. Justice. Justice is good. A a person or a society that does not value justice is evil. It it allows uh, uh, carnage and wickedness to go unchecked, unstopped. 
Justice rewards what is good and it punishes what is bad. Justice values truth. It despises lies. Justice is the bedrock of any good culture. And it is the first casualty in any oppressive society. For God to uphold justice, for him to vindicate what is good and condemn what is wicked, he must bring judgment. Throughout history, God has been careful to bring decisive acts of judgment, uh, the great flood. Uh, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues of Egypt, the conquest of Canaan, uh, the judgment on the Philistines in the days of David, on and on. And the point is always the same. He doesn't want us to forget who he is and that he loves justice. Because a good and a loving God must judge what is evil or he's not good. Because he's good, there's a day coming when his, when his judgment will be complete. It's no wonder that Revelation describing that day of final judgment invokes the imagery and the language of Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51. Babylon is, is more than a nation by this point. It's become an identity. identity. It, it epitomizes all who are in rebellion against a true God, the true God. For justice to win, all rebellion must eventually be judged, and it will be. Because judgment alone can vindicate justice. I think we expect that. It's not really a surprise. What's surprising is that judgment alone can provide for salvation. We expect that judgment can protect justice, but we, I think, are surprised that judgment alone can provide for salvation. Because the great tension in the story of God's children is the tension between their sin and his love. God's people need judgment. They need discipline because they've rebelled, because they've sinned. Egypt, Moab, Ammon, Babylon, the Philistines aren't unique in their sin and in their rebellion. God's children have been there with them every step of the way. And we've already seen that, that justice has, uh, has to be protected or God is not good. Rebellion must be judged. So what hope is there for God's children if they're every bit as sinful as the Egyptians and the Romans and the Babylonians. Well, we've also seen that God's judgment has a way of bringing life. It, it produces sorrow. It produces repentance in his children. It brings them from death to life. God is able to use judgment to do something beautiful and glorious. And what we see in Jeremiah 50 and 51 prepares us for what God would ultimately do in Jesus Christ. Jesus came into this world in order to suffer judgment. He suffered in our place in order to satisfy justice in our stead, in our place, on our behalf, so that he might be both just and merciful. Isaiah said it this way. We heard it in our Declaration of Pardon. He was pierced for our transgressions. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. Without the judgment of Jesus Christ on the cross, we would be lost in our sin and rebellion. God provides salvation through judgment. Our passage says that it's through judgment that God finally brings reconciliation between Judah and Israel, that, that divided nation. 
the Bible goes on to expand that this idea will, will include Gentiles as well. And we saw this when we studied Romans a few years back. God says his temporary judgment on Israel has allowed for the gospel to go forward to the Gentiles. He used their rebellion to take the message of salvation to the ends of the earth. Some have misinterpreted that to mean that God is done with the Jews. Our passage will not allow that. Jeremiah 50 verse 5 says, They shall ask the way to Zion, that with faces turned toward it, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. They're God's children, and his judgment with his children are temporary. The Bible always speaks of Gentiles being brought into the house of Israel, not, not replacing it. It speaks of peace where there was once hostility. It demands humility then from Gentiles toward the Jews. God's judgment doesn't just bring peace between Israel and Judah, but also between the Jews and the Gentiles when they humble themselves in repentance for their sin. That blessing isn't new in Romans. It's actually in Jeremiah, laced into all the judgments on Egypt and Moab and Ammon and the other nations were offers of salvation. Chapter 46, verse 26, 48, verse 48, 49, verse 6, 49, 39. All these have these little references that say, repent, turn, and find grace. For God, it's never been an issue of whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, but whether you would turn to him in humility, and ask for grace, ask for mercy. His salvation has always been for whoever would admit their sin and look to him for salvation. The idea of Gentiles as well as Jews being brought to repentance through judgment is actually right here in Jeremiah. Without the judgment of God, none of the Gentiles here would, and in our midst on our meeting today would know the comfort of placing their faith in Jesus Christ. Without the judgment of God, we would remain outside the household of Israel. Without his judgment, there would be no peace for us with him and no peace for us with each other. This peace is something that can only be accomplished through God's judgment. Is it any wonder then that the one visible symbol that God left for his church was actually a picture of judgment? If we were together right now, and of course there weren't radical uh, health concerns, we would be gathering around a meal, bread and wine, pictures of Jesus' death on the cross as he endured judgment in our place. It was the greatest act of judgment this world has ever seen. But we don't despise the cross because we know that it was there that God protected his own justice and punished our sin as it deserved. We know that it was there that in the judgment of Jesus Christ that he provided salvation for us. And so each week as we gather as the body of Christ who have been given peace with one another, we know that that peace we have with each other is because we have peace with God. And so the apostle tells us that, that in the Lord's Supper, we, we understand that because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we are all partakers of the one bread. <laughs> Judgment may not be a fun subject. We might try to avoid it, but there's no hope without it. 
And so even as we meditate on this heavy subject this morning, let us rejoice that our God is a God of judgment who protects justice, who brings salvation and restores and grants peace, not only with him, but with all who are called by his name. Let us pray. Father, we confess that your judgments are often hard to understand. And in many ways, we long for your judgments, but in other ways, we fear them. And we ask that you would forgive our fickle hearts, that you would help us to know that you are good. For we know that if you did not judge sin, that you would participate in it, and that thought is abhorrent. And yet in your mercy and your love, you have found a way both to protect your justice and to forgive sin. You have found a way to be righteous and merciful, the just and the justifier. And so help us to receive your mercy uh, through your discipline. Help us to accept your discipline. And may it produce in us that which uh, you have designed it for. May we grow in godliness. May we experience peace with each other. May we be more like Jesus. We thank you for our time together this morning. Um, and even as we head out uh, soon and go our separate ways, we ask that you would bless us and that you would keep us, that you would make your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. Father, lift up your countenance upon us and give us your peace, we pray. Amen.